<clears throat> well, we'll go, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, this is the fourth session of the uh, book, A Time for Confidence, Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society. Like a good teacher, I didn't even bring the book up here um, to show you, but hopefully by now you've seen it. Um, if you're going through it with us, here is our schedule. Oh, I don't even have the thing up here. Sorry about that. Also like a good teacher. Here's our schedule that we've been <clears throat> tracking on. Uh, we've got this, this week, January 5th, uh, Confidence in Christ. Next week, Confidence in the Gospel. And then finally, Confidence in Hope. No breaks in between. You will see that? We're going to blaze through these last three. Last three. Um, before we get started today, uh, let me pray for our time. Uh, bow with me. All-seeing God, we confess our sinful response to the trials and discom- discomforts of our lives. While in the depths of woe, we have resented our need for you and rarely lifted our eyes to you, the only one who can bring us true help. Instead, we have consistently directed our gaze to earthly things that falsely promise escape and comfort. We have been, char- we have been charmed by vain things. In our willful blindness to the love and comfort you offer us, we are found completely guilty in your holy sight. Yet as we continually stray from your love and your law, you look upon our helpless state and lead us to the cross. We ask you to do this now, Father. Thank you that Jesus looked perfectly to you in every single situation in his life, trusting you completely in all things. We are deeply grateful that Jesus never stopped trusting you, even when you did not allow the cup of condemnation that we deserve to pass from him. Jesus had to be lifted up on the cross because of our unwillingness to lift up our eyes to you. Yet Christ's life and death on our behalf is the very comfort to which we are habitually so unwilling to look. Forgive us, Father, for our rejection of this beautiful gospel story in which you have invited us. Loving God, soften our hearts to delight in your love for us. Change us into sons and daughters who are enraptured with the story of the gospel that we run to our beautiful Savior as we experience suffering in our lives. Help us to trust you as you call us into journeys that we do not want to take, knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. Give us strength to believe that from your own fullness, you will repay all that you take from us. Lift our eyes afresh to the cross from whence our help comes, the place where our lives were saved by Jesus' death. In his name we come. Amen. Uh, We're going to begin with um, one of... We're going to do three of the theses from uh, Luther. This one is uh, Thesis 37. Uh, Let's look at it. Every true Christian, whether living or dead, has part in all the benefits of Christ and the church. And this is granted to him by God, even without letters of pardon. So what is the essence of this thesis? Anybody? What does this make you think of? All granted by God. Anybody else? Okay. What about the benefits? Does this sound like union with Christ? Okay. So this is, uh, I said this this union with Christ is going to be the, the main focus of this uh, chapter today um, in having confidence in Christ. Uh, so this is where we start. Uh, the next two, 92 and 93. Away then with all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, 
peace, peace, and there is no peace. And then 93, blessed be all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, cross, cross, and there is no cross. So, if you read the book, you, you already have the answer to this, but what, is, what are these two saying here? They're kind of in conjunction with one another. It's hard to take one without the other, but uh, what about 92? What's, what's the, that one say? Peace, peace, and there is no peace. What is he talking about here? These false prophets, they say there is peace. We have peace, even though they know that we really don't have peace with God. There is no peace for us. But what about 93? This seems kind of weird the way it's worded. Maybe it's translation issues the way it, way it was translated. But he says, cross, cross, and there is no cross. And he's saying, blessed be all those prophets. What is, what's he saying? He's not saying that there is no cross, right? He's saying here um, that there is no cross for us. Just as the first one said, there is no peace for us. This one is saying there is no cross for us. Christ has accomplished all things through the cross. He has done it all. He bore the cross. He accomplished it all. Even Christ himself pointed us to the finality and the efficacy of the cross with his words, it is finished. We live in a world and a culture that promises peace, Joy, love, autonomy of self. The world says, trust us, this will make you happy. All the while knowing it will never last. We must stop turning to the world for our confidence and instead place our confidence in the only thing that matters in this life. Christ and his cross. And this is exactly where the reformers focused. If you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to read the first chapter. As we read this, um, be thinking about what is the main focus of this, this uh, chapter. Okay, Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your th throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions and the Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all? ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. 
So what, what is the main focus of this, this chapter? What is, what is the writer of Hebrews trying to do here? He wants us to consider Christ, to consider Jesus, consider who He is, and His place. That's what we're looking at here in Hebrews 1. It's all about Christ, every bit of it. So then we stop short of chapter 2, verse 1, but it says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So why is he telling us in the whole first chapter to consider Christ? I think this is a pretty good indication of why. So we don't drift away. So we don't fall away from what we've learned, what we've heard, and what we believe. We must consider Jesus, just as chapter 1 shows us, so that we do not drift away. Just like Rome, we face many enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil were the three that we pointed out in chapter 2 of this book. Um, the world is not just those outside the church. We have seen many inside the church who take the focus off of Christ and place it somewhere else. If we do not consider Jesus, we will be led astray by the false teachers and the trappings of our day. Agree? Disagree? This is a call to consider Christ. Hebrews 3.6 But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Our confidence and our boasting must be in Christ because why? Because he is faithful over God's house and we are his house. What about Hebrews 4:14 4, through 16? Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We must hold fast our confession and with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace, especially in our time of need. Christ knows what we are going through. He faced what we face, but he was perfect. So here's some of the things that we see from Hebrews. Sorry, I didn't give you all of the text. I just started with the first two. Um, Number one, he is truly God. Number two, he is truly man. Number three, he is our high priest who is able to save to the uttermost. Number four, he is superior to everything else that precedes him. He has accomplished our salvation through his perfect obedience and atoning death on the cross. He is the complete revelation of God, the complete fulfillment and apex of all revelation. And then finally, He is the consummation of all God's promises. Despised and rejected, Christ suffered the most shameful death of the time. So as we consider Christ, we see He endured because, because of this we can endure. Does anybody know what this is? Okay. Is that because you read the book or did you know that already? Oh, man. Has anybody actually seen one of these? 
It's a Roman manhole cover. Like a, su like a sewer manhole cover, I guess. Um, so there's, there's four letters. I don't know if, if it's hard to tell with the lights. Can you read the four letters that are in there? S SPQR. Uh, so anybody, Latin, anybody that knows what those letters stand for? If you read the chapter, you know. I'm not even going to try to butcher that. Yeah. So this Latin phrase means the Senate and people of Rome. Uh, especially in first century Rome, these initials stressed the benefits and one's identity as a citizen of Rome. Uh, great privilege came with being Roman. And there was also great pride that flowed out of being Roman. So what about us? Do we have the same identity as first century, first century Romans? Of course not. We don't live in first century Rome, right? Where do we live? We live in 21st century America. But do we have this same or similar mindset that the people of Rome had? Do we have a symbol that portrays this same sentiment that this uh, SPQR manhole cover and all the, it's on some of the military items and stuff as well. Can you think of one in particular? The flag. Okay. We're not going there yet. All right. Hold on, hold, hold your horses. The flag. Uh, we, we, we throw people in jail for lighting it on fire. I mean, we, it's, well, we, maybe we used to. Um, this, this was a sacred, this, this is a sacred item in our society. It brings a lot of the same sentiment and feelings when, when you see the flag that I'm sure the Romans felt about the, um, the, the symbol that they had. Um, we receive great privilege uh, being U.S. citizens. There's great pride that flows out of being American. And how much of our identity is wrapped up in being American? There are thousands putting their lives on the line to protect this nation and this symbol. But where does our earthly citizenship fall in the spectrum of who we are? Does it look, does, does your identity look like this flagpole? That's the Christian flag for those that don't know or can't. That's kind of a weird, just notice that's kind of a bad picture of that. Um, is our identity first American, then Christian? Art says no. I believe you, Art. No, our identity is in Christ. And that must be where our identity is because this flag may not always be the flag. This nation may not always be the nation it is now. So if our confidence and our hope is in this flag, this nation this country, then we're placing our confidence and our hope in the wrong thing. So what does Peter say it means to be in Christ? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says in verse 10, You are not a people. You are hopeless and floundering. But now we are a people. Whose people? God's people. That was an easy answer. Come on. Come on. What else does he say? We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I forgot to underline the last one. A people for his own possession. There are a lot of privileges that come with these things. Mainly that we are no longer God's enemy, but we are his people. But just as Roman people enjoyed certain benefits, there were also obligations due to being a people of Rome. The same is true for us as Christians. So we've got to go back to uh, the first chapter of Peter, 1 Peter to see these obligations. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what is he saying here? What is our obligation? Specific words he uses. Be holy. So we go back to the end of the last section we read. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He tells us one more reason we must be holy in order that we that our conduct might point those who don't believe to God. There's one more very important thing Peter teaches us in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and it is something that I've been avoiding thus far in this lesson. Anybody know what it might be? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, suffering. The life of a Christian is littered with fiery trials. So why is he telling us about suffering here? Yeah, both of those things. He wants the reader to not be surprised by it when it comes. So it's the same reason why we force kids in schools to do fire drills or now even worse, active shooter drills. It's for what purpose? So that when it happens, if it happens, they're ready. Um, the last thing you want in times of trial is to be surprised that it's there. Um, so he's drawing our attention to the fact that it will come, it will happen. So there's a firmness in this language here. Um, it's not a if it comes, but instead when it comes. So is this comforting to anybody? I think so. 
It's not necessarily what I want to hear, um, but it but it is comforting that he's telling us ahead of time. He's warning us of these fiery trials to come. He also wants the reader to stand firm in what he, he has preached to them throughout this um, throughout this book. He is saying to us all, when things get tough, we must not be shaken. We must stand firm. In our own strength? Absolutely not. But instead, in our weakness, we stand firm in the fact that Christ stood firm for us. After officials called Luther to recant, to renounce his writings, he made this famous speech in front of the imperial diet. This is the last, of 11, the last point of 11 he made uh, during this speech. This was his simple answer to the simple question, do you recant? Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness, mightinesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is a, as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error, into glaring inconsistencies with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cognate reason, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in the way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. So Luther was not just standing firm for himself. He was standing firm for generations and even centuries to come. Sorry about that. Just ignore that thing at the bottom. Uh, We cling to the part of union with Christ that means forgiveness of sins. That means the conquering of all our enemies, including sin and death, and that means ultimate victory. We like that we are raised in newness of life with Christ. But is that the only part that we cling to? Do we cling to the fact that because we are united to him, we share in his sufferings and become like him in his death? Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So do we say, as Elizabeth Elliot said, whatever is in the cup that God is offering me, whether it be pain and sorrow and suffering and grief, along with many more joys, I will, I'm willing to take it because I trust him. Are we? Little, I'm sure you can't read the little caption at the bottom of that. I wanted you to see the big picture. Um, so 1976 was declare, declared by Time Magazine to be the year of the evangelical. Carter and Ford, both of the uh, presidential candidates, both claimed to be Christians, and everybody loved Billy Graham. So this is a Billy Graham crusade in San Diego Stadium. I don't know if that's just like half the stadium's full, so that's the only part they took a picture of, but it looks like a lot of people there to see Billy Graham. Um, so the picture on the left, does anybody know what that is? I'm far too young to know what that is, but Bobby? So it's also the, the finger pointing in the air for the, uh, what they called the Jesus people or the Jesus freaks of 
the 1960s and 70s, um, which kind of led into the beginning of contemporary Christian music, uh, incorporating uh, rock, the rock um, genre into uh, Christian music. So this seemed, it seemed evangelicals were coming out from under the dark cloud of the Scopes trial from 1925. Christians had seemed to make it back to what Nichols called the cool kids table. I don't know if anybody remembers high school, middle school, the cool kids table, but um, he was saying evangelicals had a, had a place at the cool kids table again um, during these two or three decades. And it seemed that, they, that Christians had influence again. Uh, but some have called this time in history uh, the myth of influence, saying that they never really had any influence at all. Um, that's why it's gone down so quickly from, from where it was. This shaped up to be a time of cultural Christianity. Uh, now it very much seems Christians are no longer welcome at the cool kids' table. As Aletha pointed out in a previous lesson, uh, we've been blessed with a significant amount of privilege so far in our nation's history as Christians. Uh, but we see that that privilege is quickly slip, uh, slipping through the cracks. And as Nichols points out, persecution, persecution and cultural marginalization are coming to the church and it has already begun to shake those structures that are culturally Christian or nominally Christian, leaving behind that which is biblically Christian. So are we willing to stand firm on what is biblically Christian? He also asked the question, suffering and persecution are new waters that we are entering in this new cultural context for the American church. As we move into what is being called a post-Christian culture, are we going to find that this expression that we share in his sufferings might resonate a little more deeply with our experience? Our confidence comes from the fact that Christ is, in fact, king and he is ruling, but he is also Christ of the cross, and that cross embraces suffering, shame, persecution, opposition, which all seem counterintuitive. We seek pleasure and avoid pain, so participating in the fellowship of Christ's suffering strikes us as counterproductive and very much countercultural. Paul uses the platform of his weakness to vindicate his authority and his ministry. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. On behalf of this man, I will boast... But on my behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatnesses, the greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that I should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses." insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In a world that is continuously looking to tear down the walls of Christianity, are we in the same place that Paul was in? Do we share in the hope that he had, and do we stand firm in Christ just as he did? What did Paul learn in his affliction? 
resting in God's sovereignty. So he says here, God's grace is sufficient for us. Not just that it was, that it was sufficient, but that it is currently sufficient and will always be sufficient. God's grace is sufficient to save, but it is also sufficient to keep us and meet us at every turn as we live our lives. A quote from Spurgeon, and it does really paint a, a picture of suffering that I think we all need to see. Sorry. We learn, I hope, something in the bright fields of joy. But I am more persuaded that we don't learn a tenth as much there as we do in the valley of death shade. Do you agree? Again, not something we like to hear. Not something we want to wish for. But how much more have you learned personally in the dark times of your life than you have in the most joyous periods of time in your life? I would say that's true across the board. I don't like to make generalizations, but I would say that's, that's pretty much true for everybody sitting in here. Um, absolutely. We, and we do forget the joy and the, the quote-unquote blessings that we like to... We receive this thing we think is a good thing from God, and we immediately forget how good He's been to us. We are weak. We enter and live the Christian life by God's grace and power because there is no other way. We have nothing to offer and nothing to stand on in and of ourselves. Admitting our weakness is key to putting our confidence in Christ. When we consider the incarnate Christ, we do not see a high priest who, as Hebrews 14.5 puts it, is unable to sympathize with our weakness but instead we see one who is made perfect through suffering. His strength and his power shine in our weakness. So this is a quote from Calvin's Institutes, uh, the last book, I think it's even the last chapter uh, in the last book. For truly, Christians ought to be a kind of men born to bear slander and injuries, open to malice and deceits, mockeries of wicked men, and not that only, but they ought to bear patiently all these evils. That is, they should have such complete spiritual composure that, having received one offense, they make ready for another, promising themselves throughout life nothing but the bearing of a perpetual cross. We have been redeemed by Christ at so great a price as our redemption cost him, so that we should not enslave ourselves to the wicked desires of men, much less be subject to their impiety. So Calvin assumes here that Christians will suffer anything rather than turn aside from piety. Is that true of us? That's a tough one for me to read. He counsels that in such times we find comfort in our obedience to God. Elizabeth Elliot in her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, says, Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. I think that's an amazing, amazing way to put it. So what, what comes to your mind when, when, we, when I say the word suffering? Anybody? Just throw some out there. Pain? And I completely agree with you. But until we get to that stage, do we do nothing else? Do we sit back and say, there's no suffering in this life? Absolutely. 
And my hope would be that we never get to that point in this nation. But I'm, I'm not God. I'm not, not sovereign. I don't know what that looks like for us in the future. But that's where we're going. Last slide goes there. Um, but for us who are not directly impacted by suffering in that way right now, there are people who are actually suffering, people who have cancer, who have their children die. Um, And I think that that's, this is just as much touching on those things as it is on actual persecution and death and loss of life from outside the church. Uh, Piper has a, there's an excerpt from Piper's, one of Piper's messages called Do Not Lose Heart, um, and it's featured in the monologue inserted into Shane and Shane's song, Though You Slay Me. I don't know if anybody's uh, seen or heard that, but this is what Piper says. Not only is all your affliction momentary, not not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain, from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it's cancer or criticism. I don't care if it's slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. Of course, you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you've got cancer at 40, you don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart. But take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God, His Word, and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. So how does this all help us? As I tried to sit back and think about this whole chapter and how this actually helps me in my everyday life, um, I tried to come up with something that I could, I could say that would be a picture of how we can start our day, end our day, however it is. Um, but I think that this is important, so if you completely agree with all six of the things I'm about to say, then please call me on it. Um, but this is, this is where I landed. <clears throat> so as I wake up in the morning and tell myself these things, number one, Christ's work is sufficient, and I must stand firm in, stand firm in what he has accomplished on my behalf. Number two, Since Christ's work is sufficient, I can now live for God's glory no matter the hand that is dealt to me, giving my life as a living sacrifice to Him. Number three, I am free to obey God's commands and should desire to do so out of love and gratitude for His mercy and grace. Number four, today should be full of repentance, turning from my sin and fleeing the temptations of this world and praying without ceasing. Number five, I must love my neighbor as myself at the cost of my own comfort and pleasure. And then number six, I will not do any of these perfectly today, but number one is still true. Christ's work is sufficient. Any thoughts? Bobby's got th- thumbs up. Anybody else? I'll, ta- I'll take it, Bobby. Yeah, absolutely. That's everything we do. That's every every moment of every day. Um, so I've got one more slide, but any more thoughts? Um, the last one doesn't necessarily have anything to do with directly the content that we've gotten here. Um, 
but any, Rob? Absolutely, because we're, we're in a culture full of so-called Christians who water down who Christ is and what the gospel is. And if we're not firm in it, then we're not doing exactly what uh, Luther did. He stood firm for generations in the face of death and being jailed for what he was saying. This is exactly where we could possibly be going. But right now, we're not even doing it well as a quote-unquote church to make sure that we're doing those things even when we're not being persecuted. So what's going to happen when actual persecution comes? That's, I think that's, a, that's something we need to all um, think about and reckon with. Um, it may happen to some and not others. So last slide. David's going to play in normal fashion. I like to go to a song of some sorts. This is All I Have is Christ, Sovereign Grace music song. Uh, David's going to play the audio for it so you don't have to listen to me. Just read it. It doesn't seem like it has quite the same uh, punch as when, when you get to hear it.
So <clears throat> with this song in mind, the last minute or so we have, if we came to church one Sunday knowing that on Monday Christianity would be outlawed, would be against the law to practice Christianity, how would we sing this song that Sunday morning? How would we sing any of the songs that we, we sing together? Would it change the way we worship our Heavenly Father, especially that Sunday? We're not there yet, but we're moving in a direction that is going that way. It may not happen in my time. It may not happen in my kids' time. But I pray for all of us that as we think about that being a possibility and us fighting against that, how will we come to church every Sunday knowing that it is a gift to come and worship with one another in the open without being publicly discriminated, not being thrown in jail? Um, it should change the way that we come and, and worship in this place especially together with one another. Final thoughts? Thank you, guys.